I'm Bob Schiller. Uh, I have the pleasure of introducing this uh, Oaken lecture, uh, Lawrence, Lawrence Summers. I wanted to say first that the Oaken lecture series was funded by an anonymous donor in honor of Arthur Oaken, who was professor of economics here at Yale, uh, who later uh, became uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, who founded with William Brainerd the uh, Brookings Papers on Economic Activity, and was widely admired both here at Yale and uh, around the world as an economist that has uh, had a lot of impact on policy, uh, an economist with a purpose. Uh, so it's altogether fitting that we have Lawrence Summers here as our Oaken lecturer for this year. Uh, Larry Summers, um, he's, I go through his career briefly. He started out at age 16 at MIT as a physics major. Um, fortunately for us, he switched into economics uh, at a very, as a teenager. Uh, he got his PhD at Harvard. He uh, got tenure at Harvard at one of the, he's one of the earliest uh, in age, at age 28. Um, in 1993, he won the John Bates Clark Medal for the best economist under the age of 40. Uh, he joined the staff of the Council of Economic Advisors. He was Undersecretary of Treasury uh, for International Affairs. He was Chief Economist at the World Bank. He was the U.S. Secretary of Treasury. Uh, he was President of Harvard University. Uh, and now he is a University Professor at Harvard and also a uh, Director at D.E. Shaw. Uh, his research uh, has been truly stunning, uh, I say, I've always been a, a huge admirer of it, and it covers many fields, public finance, labor, macroeconomics, and finance in particular. Uh, I thought I would just uh, conclude my introduction with a couple of famous Larry Summers quotes. Uh, this, th these quotes are advice to graduate students, but they might as well be advice to any researcher. Uh, Larry is quoted as saying, uh, you might as well work on big problems because it takes just as much time to write a paper on a little problem as on a big problem. Uh, and uh, another bit of advice to students. Um, do your research on the economy, not on the economic literature. <laughs> and so uh, I think that that's a bit of wise advice, but I think that uh, that, uh, to me, that um, says something about the essence of his research style. Uh, he's been extremely potent in his work on very important results that kind of shape our view of the world. Uh, and I think that uh, it's this research style that uh, is part of the reason why he's been tapped for such important positions. So uh, I'm pleased to introduce uh, Larry Summers. Thank you, Bob, uh, very much for that uh, overly generous introduction. Uh, at least one thing you said um, wasn't quite right, 
it may or may not have been economics as good luck when I left physics, but it was surely the good luck of the physics profession <laughs> when I left uh, physics. Just a minute. I've got an elaborate program of microphones they wish me to turn on here. How's that? It's the other one. No, I just turned that one on. Okay, good. Everybody happy? Um, I appreciated your uh, generosity in uh, reflecting on the different uh, sectors in which I'd had a chance uh, to work. When I first moved from uh, the university to uh, Washington, people asked me, well, what's different about being a senior treasury official from being a professor at uh, Harvard? And I realized the answer to that one was easy. As a professor at Harvard, the single worst thing you could do was to sign your name to something you had not written yourself. On the other hand, in the Treasury Department, it was a mark of effectiveness to do so as frequently as possible. <laughs> and then I got back to Harvard and had the honor of serving as its president. And people asked me, what was different about the university from Washington? And in those first months, I gave an answer that in retrospect seems slightly breathtaking in its naivete. I said, Washington is so political. There's so much opposition. University, it's very different from that. We're all on the same side. It is a real honor to be here at Yale, and it is a particular honor to deliver the Arthur Oaken lectures. I am told that I first met Art Oaken when I was one week old, as he and my father were close friends during the time when they were assistant professors at uh, Yale together. And in fact, I grew up until a certain age calling him uh, Uncle Art. And I don't have many vivid memories, but I have a quite vivid memory, and I was able to go back and uh, place the year. It was 1969. And Art delivered a set of lectures, probably a set of lectures like this one, um, at the University of Pennsylvania. And he stayed at our house. And he stayed up telling my parents a whole set of stories about life as an economist uh, with uh, Lyndon Johnson. Some of those stories are a little too raunchy uh, to uh, repeat. Uh, right here, but it was the first inkling I had that this academic research stuff, like my parents did, really could have a very direct and real uh, impact on the policy arena. I remember especially, somehow, I don't know what determines what makes an impression on you when you're 15, but uh, 14, but my father telling me the story of how there was a, and I have no idea whether this story is actually true, but the story he told was that there was a publication 
that the Department of Commerce published called BCD, which stood for Business Cycle Digest, which compiled all the facts about the business cycle and whether the economy was up or whether the economy was down. But that because of all this stuff that economists had figured out, uh, like art, we now had these practical policies that we could use so that when there was a recession, we'd stop the recession from happening, and when there was an excessive boom, we'd smooth off the boom. And so we didn't necessarily have to have business cycles anymore. And so, but we liked calling the publication BCD. So Art had had the clever idea of renaming the publication the Business Conditions Digest to celebrate the success of uh, Keynesian uh, economics. Time went on and the first um, great success, if there ever were any great successes of my career as a graduate student, came when uh, Art Oaken and George Perry um, invited uh, Kim Clark and I to give what was the first significant paper that I had written as a graduate student on labor market dynamics and unemployment at uh, the Brookings Papers on Economic Activity uh, Conference, and it was the uh, thrill of our young lives, and it was also a vastly, vastly better paper in the form in which uh, it was uh, published uh, than it was in the form in which it was originally written, uh, thanks to uh, art. And I have a final memory that um, pertains uh, to art that also says something about art. I remember uh, sometime in the early 1980s uh, sitting at the lunch table in the MIT faculty club and in a way that some of you who know me won't find surprising. I was uh, declaiming on various subjects with a certain lack of reticence that perhaps uh, was not commensurate with my lack of knowledge. And I asserted some proposition. And Paul Samuelson turned to me and he said, Larry, I just wrote a eulogy for Art Oaken, who died recently. And I said that in all the years that I had known Art Oaken, Art Oaken had never said a stupid thing. Well, Larry, now I won't be able to say that about you. <laughs> And one of the things that gives me particular pleasure in, along with Greg Mankiw, taking over the editorship of uh, the Brookings Papers on Economic Activity from Bill Brainerd and George Perry, who have done such a stellar job for the last 25 years, is the knowledge that it was a project uh, that had been initiated um, by art. It was a project that had been initiated by art out of a conviction that I have tried uh, to live by in my career and that I hope in some small way to illustrate uh, with my remarks uh, here uh, today. That serious economic thinking can help one understand the world much better, 
that with the aid of the metaphors and the models and the measurements that come from serious economic uh, thinking, one can direct economic policies in better and in more sensible ways. And as a consequence, the lives of very large numbers of people, none of, most of whom will never hear of economics and certainly will not study its details, will in some way be improved by having a higher incomes, by facing less risk, by being more secure as they go through uh, their livelihoods. And it's in that spirit that I want to reflect today on some aspects of macroeconomic thinking and experience, and then some aspects of financial thinking and experience, and how they bear on financial crisis. And then tomorrow, on the particular financial crisis that we face right now, what has been done, what may happen, what should be done, and what can be done over the longer term to make the return of such a crisis more important, more, uh, less, uh, less likely. Art was preoccupied through most of his career with the central macroeconomic issue of assuring stable growth. And to use language that's perhaps uh, more congenial to older than younger ears, avoiding underemployment and output uh, gaps. It's revealing that the journal he founded was called the Brookings Papers on Economic Activity, suggesting a concern with the cyclical performance of the economy. He surely, as much as anyone, would have subscribed to Jim Tobin's famous dictum that it takes a heap of Harburger triangles to fill an oaken gap, or that the macroeconomic issues of recession and depression are terribly, terribly important relative to the microeconomic uh, efficiencies that are a preoccupation of a very large number of economists. This idea, this first idea, that oaken gaps exist and are large and are very important relative to microeconomic inefficiencies is one that is increasingly unfashionable uh, today. Discussing them within the context of what has been called, although I suppose it can't be called that anymore, the new classical macroeconomics is almost impossible. There's no role for any kind of gap. It's much like discussing epicycles uh, with a modern astronomer. But even within the Keynesian tradition, the accepted versions of the Keynesian model greatly circumscribe the scope for what was art's major concern, underemployment and uh, the output uh, gap. Because if one thinks about uh, the uh, centerpiece of 
the supply side of any macroeconomic model, um, almost any macroeconomic model post uh, 1980, in some form or other, it has the implication that uh, the change in inflation is in some way dependent on the output gap. Perhaps it's the change in inflation, perhaps even more problematically, uh, it's the unexpected component of inflation, perhaps the causation runs the other way, and the output gap is related to the, ch is caused by the change in inflation, or is caused by the uh, level of unexpected uh, inflation. Any equation, any theory of output that has that property has a simple consequence if you aggregate it over a long period of time, namely that if you look at the difference between inflation at the end of the period and inflation at the beginning of the period, or equivalently if you look at the average level of unexpected inflation, which has to be zero, it will relate to the size of uh, the output gap. And therefore, if one thinks of a steady state as being a state in which unexpected inflation averages zero, or a state in which the, the change in inflation averages zero, you know what the output gap has uh, got to be. It has got to average zero. This doesn't mean there's no role for cyclical policy, but it has the very strong implication that what you gain um, in the booms, you lose in the recessions. That if you have deeper recessions, you will be able to have larger booms. That if you have larger booms, you will be able to have, uh, you, will be, you will be forced to have uh, deeper recessions. And in a sense, if one accepts this idea, the subject of cyclical fluctuations in macroeconomics becomes an order of magnitude less important than it was if one maintained some older idea in which it's possible to have output gaps that are not offset by uh, subsequent uh, gains in output. To be sure, and much has been made of the point at uh, certain moments, there may be some impact of nonlinearity in the relationship between the gap and the change in inflation or unexpected inflation. If this relationship is uh, nonlinear, then it's possible that by running smoother, uh, a smoother economy, one can run a somewhat higher pressure uh, economy. But in a world where econometricians struggle to estimate any kind of uh, Phillips curve, the idea that one can measure with any precision a nonlinearity of this kind is, at the very least, problematic. And so ironically, the Keynesian model as it came uh, to evolve, the Keynesian model that, and the Keynesian discussion 
that had as its centerpiece the Phillips curve in some form. In almost all of the forms in which the Phillips curve uh, came was quite skeptical of the role of macroeconomic policy in affecting average levels of output through time. Very little room for Art Oaken's dedication to closing output gaps or maintaining a higher pressure economy as a way of spurring economic growth or as a way of promoting a more equal uh, income uh, distribution. Art's la the last decade of Art's professional work was directed at uh, questions that in one way or another uh, relate uh, to uh, these uh, equations. His final book was entitled uh, Prices and Quantities, and his dominant professional preoccupation was uh, in his last years with how the rate of inflation could be brought down with a minimum level of the output gap with, as he would have put it, a minimum sacrifice uh, ratio. It's not hard to understand why these questions relating to inflation and output were preoccupations of arts during his uh, professional uh, lifetime. It's interesting to think about uh, U.S. business cycle uh, history. When people like me gave talks about the economic outlook to uh, non-academic audiences uh, 15 or 20 uh, years ago, it was uh, considered a cleverness uh, to observe that American economic expansions do not die of old age. They are murdered by the Federal Reserve with inflation control as uh, the motive. And if one thought about, thinks about a universe of uh, experience, uh, the three Eisenhower recessions that were formative um, for uh, art, although uh, I believe the second of them coincided with my birth, the 1966-1967 um, economic downturn, more conspicuously the major downturns in 74-75 in the wake of the oil supply shock and in 1980-1982, the Volcker disinflation, these were most of the experience we had with the business cycle in a substantial swath of economic history. The economy expanded in one way or another, inflation got out of control, people got nervous about inflation, the Fed hit the, the, Fed, uh, hit the brakes, interest rates spiked, the yield curve uh, inverted, the economy uh, slowed. To be sure, there were great controversies uh, about uh, how, what exactly the mechanism was, what was the role of credit rationing in the housing sector versus higher interest rates, to what extent did the transmission mechanism take place uh, through uh, Tobin's queue. But if one asked, 
what was the cause of downturns? The cause was monetary. The accounts of business cycle, historians uh, who tracked events um, were couched in uh, those uh, terms. The enormously influential monetary history of the United States emphasized the role of monetary contractions and of Federal Reserve, uh, Federal Reserve uh, policies. The academic issues of the day, which focused quite critically on the questions of price rigidity, therefore led to a natural focus as the canonical experiment of suppose you reduce M, the money stock, what happens to the level of output in the short run, and why does that happen? And so the prevailing view about business cycles was that they were determined by monetary policy and what led to contractionary monetary policy was either a mistake by the Fed or a necessary action um, by the Fed as inflation uh, accelerated. But it is interesting to contemplate that if one looks before or after what one might think of as uh, the Oaken period and tries to give a simple account of what was behind the business cycles uh, that uh, took place, one offers a rather different uh, kind of uh, story. 1907 is linked to a financial panic. It couldn't have been caused by the Fed since the Fed uh, didn't, ex didn't uh, exist yet. In 1929, the actions of the Federal Reserve in 1928 or 1929 may or may not have been a crucial causative factor, but there's a reason they talk about the stock market crash as a prelude uh, to uh, the Depression. Uh, the dominant influences were endogenous to uh, the workings of the financial system. And if one thinks about the three most recent instances of cyclical fluctuation in uh, the uh, United, in, uh, the United, in the United States, um, the 1990-1992 case uh, can be debated. There was an oil shock. There had been some tightening of monetary policy. But I think most uh, observers would assign uh, dominant influence to the problems in the financial system associated with the SNLs and the overextension of banks in uh, real estate lending. There's no question that uh, almost any close watcher, if asked to say what was the 2001 recession about, they would say bursting of the technology, bursting of uh, the technology bubble. And I'll have more to say about uh, the 2008 um, uh, recession a little later and uh, tomorrow, including some speculations on the probability that there is one. Um, but no one would say of the current fluctuation that it reflected 
the Federal Reserve's excessive or necessary effort to curb inflation in product uh, price markets. Rather, they would attribute it in one way or another to something endogenous to uh, the financial system. The debates would turn on whether it was best thought of in terms of a housing price bubble, whether it was best thought of as a matter having to do with the extens excessive extension of uh, sub uh, of uh, subprime uh, credit, whether it was uh, a reflection of a generalized excessive complacency uh, in credit markets that led to the extension of financial institutions. All of those questions could uh, be debated, but no serious dispute about uh, the proposition that it came out of the workings of uh, the financial system. And so with this history before us, in thinking about macroeconomic policy and in thinking about cyclical fluctuations, it seems to me appropriate that we at least consider redirecting some macroeconomic attention from traditional preoccupations with the price setting process, the Phillips curve, and disinflation to more traditional Keynesian uh, preoccupations with the workings of the financial system, uh, with uh, animal spirits, with, uh, if you like, shocks to the IS curve that come out of the workings of the financial system. It, this view, I would suggest, is certainly confirmed by less detailed reflection on international experience. If one thinks about the two most dramatic OECD macroeconomic events of the last 20 years, they are almost certain, OEC, excuse me, President Zedillo, uh, permanent OECD uh, member events, so I exclude uh, the drama of which uh, you, were a, uh, you were so central. Um, uh, yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, central, uh, so central a uh, part. They were almost certainly the Japanese uh, financial crisis followed by depression in uh, the 1990s and the dramatic declines in output associated with the failure of the banking system to the point where it needed to be nationalized in the Nordic countries in uh, the early uh, 1990s. Indeed, it is interesting to note that uh, in recent years, uh, financial uh, crises have uh, become uh, pervasive. One always remembers the uh, comments one makes about economic fluctuations that prove to be prescient and forgets the ones that prove to have been completely wrong. And I am no exception. Uh, so I will recall that I was fond of observing in 2005 and 2006 that if one looked at the last uh, 20 years, there had been six 
six or seven, uh, six major uh, financial crises. The 1987 uh, stock market crash, the 1990 savings and loan uh, real estate crash, the 1995 uh, Mexican uh, crash. Some would argue that if this is a US list, um, that Mexico doesn't belong, one could have that argument. The 1997 Asian financial crisis, the uh, events associated with LTCM and Russia that uh, President Clinton and Secretary Rubin at the time uh, labeled the most serious financial crisis uh, since, the Second World, since the Second World War, and the 2001 um, financial crisis associated with uh, the bursting of the tech bubble, problems in the high yield sector, um, of where the subsequent uh, problems in capital markets uh, exemplified by what happened uh, at uh, Enron. It is interesting to ask uh, the question whether there is some relation between all these events. Because what I've suggested so far is that if one distinguishes the last generation from the preceding uh, generation, in the preceding generation, financial crises were relatively rare. Business cycles were caused by the Federal Reserve eliminating uh, Federal Reserve's concern about inflation. For the last generation, um, business cycles have been associated with uh, financial uh, crisis, and the Federal Reserve has not caused downturns through its concern with inflation. How are these events uh, linked? I'm not entirely uh, sure. Uh, sitting in the Brookings Papers meetings for all these uh, years, I've learned how Bill Nordhaus is hard to satisfy. Uh, sometimes people have T statistics of three and Bill pronounces them to be quote unquote Darwinian. Um, and reflecting the data mining of the author and on other occasions they have only a few observations, in which case they're deemed to have committed one observation uh, econometrics. I'm going to commit about four observation uh, econometrics and offer the hypothesis that the right way to understand uh, this pattern is that we achieved that uh, Art's generation and then Paul Volcker achieved a hugely important thing. They achieved a measure of credibility and commitment to non-inflationary monetary policies that enabled inflation expectations to be kept in check, and that just as success in curing infectious disease leads there to be far more cancer than there was before infectious disease was brought in check, so too the achievement of disinflation leads uh, to an economy uh, in which 
expansions are enabled to continue until they lead to the complacency and confidence associated uh, with uh, financial uh, crisis. Perhaps uh, we will have 6% inflation two years from now and the Fed will, cause a Fed will find it necessary to engineer a recession and this theory will fall completely by the wayside. Perhaps there is an alternative, more compelling uh, explanation uh, for this pattern. But for now, I would adduce uh, the hypothesis that the increased incidence of financial crisis and the closer relationship between financial crisis and economic downturns is a byproduct of our success in achieving low and credible uh, inflation and the associated great uh, moderation. Whether or not um, we can um, accept that idea as to why uh, financial crisis seems to have been the cause of previous recessions where it was not previously, the empirical observation uh, stands that financial crises are frequent and that not infrequently, when there is a financial crisis, it leads to some significant disruption in uh, real uh, economic activity. It follows that the causes of uh, financial crisis, the policy response to uh, financial uh, crisis need to occupy a larger part of our consideration of macroeconomics than uh, they have uh, uh, than uh, they have uh, traditionally. I should suggest also that this is this conclusion is reinforced by. Uh, the observation that whereas disinflation recession lends itself very much to the unfortunate conservation argument I presented at the beginning uh, that suggested that uh, you couldn't really alter the output gap over long periods of time if you did not want to accept changes in inflation. It is easy to understand financial crisis and the associated downturns in output as a reduction in aggregate supply, and therefore highly plausible to believe that the better management of financial crisis or the prevention of financial crisis will lead not just to a smoother path of output, but a path that by avoiding downturns has a higher average over long periods of time and therefore is more successful in achieving the goal that Art Oaken and Jim Tobin and Yale for many, many years set 
uh, for macroeconomic policy of uh, raising the average uh, level of uh, output. Now, discussions of uh, financial crisis um, tend to have the character of uh, accident uh, investigations. Uh, there are many different suspects. Great numbers of details are mustered uh, to tell uh, the uh, story. There are always particular words associated with particular financial crises. One talks about portfolio insurance in the context of the 1987 crash. One talks about uh, Tessa Bonos in the context of uh, the uh, Mexican experience. One talks about bubble psychology in uh, the context of the, NAS of the NASDAQ uh, experience. One uses the term, one speaks about uh, the vicissitudes of the separation uh, between the originators and the owners of mortgages in talking about uh, the current subprime uh, mortgage uh, crisis. It all brings to mind uh, Tolstoy's observation that every happy family is the same and every unhappy family is uh, miserable uh, in its own way. And it is all correct, or not all of it is correct, but in each of uh, the uh, crises, there are important elements of institutional detail, of particular practice, that explain how the story played out uh, in uh, the way uh, that it did. But I want to suggest that there is some common structure that lie behind the various phenomena that are associated with a financial crisis, the understanding of which can at least help us to think about uh, the mechanism of crisis and perhaps uh, the appropriate uh, policy uh, responses. For thinking about financial crises, uh, economics has a classic metaphor that captures uh, many elements of uh, the problem. It's a set of ideas that uh, go back at least to Badgett in economic history and are known to current economic theorists as uh, Diamond Dibvig uh, phenomena. And the idea is simple, powerful, and uh, incomplete. Imagine a bank. The bank takes deposits. The deposits can be withdrawn at any moment, or at least can be withdrawn at high frequency. It takes the deposits, and it lends the money for projects. The projects have a higher rate of return than the deposits do. But the projects take some significant time to complete. And there is no market for a half-finished project. Think about that financial institution. Perhaps it also chooses to keep a portion of its deposits 
on hand uh, in uh, cash. A moment's reflection on uh, that financial institution um, will cause you to recognize that it is subject to multiple equilibrium. If everyone believes that the bank will remain healthy, the bank will, in fact, remain healthy. Depositors all can be paid back. The project will be completed. The bank shareholders are better off. The, the depositors are better off. The uh, entrepreneurs who have been lent money for their projects are better off. It is a Nash equilibrium, and everyone is better off. It is not, however, the only Nash uh, equilibrium. A moment's thought will also cause you to realize that if everyone else is taking their money out of uh, the bank, then you are well advised to take your money out of the bank as soon as you can because the bank is not going to be able to pay off all of the claims on it. And so a solvent bank is subject to self-fulfilling prophecy. It can either remain solvent or it can uh, fail depending upon the state, not just of expectations, but in a manner much like Kane's beauty contest, expectations of others' expectations. If I expect that you expect that TN expects that the bank is going to fail and that he is going to withdraw money, then the safer thing for me to do is to withdraw money. If one wants a simple theory of why if you go to any American town and you look for the most solidly built building with the most impressive facade, it will be a building that was used as a bank, um, particularly if it was constructed before the era of deposit insurance. It is precisely this notion of multiple equilibrium that explains why banks, more than other institutions, are at such pains to project credibility and to project uh, permanence. Notice that this metaphor is very powerful and is very suggestive of a case for activism because it suggests that there are multiple possibilities to which the free market will be subject. It suggests that if coordination can be achieved, there are possibilities that are unambiguously better for everyone and possibilities that are worse for everyone. And it suggests a natural role for government as a coordinator or as a guarantor in favor of the better equilibrium.
Now, to be sure, the more rigorous and skeptical uh, among, uh, among you will have noticed that I slipped an important issue by in telling the story. I said quickly that there was no market for unfinished projects. It's hard to understand why, if it's a certainty that all unfinished projects are going to succeed, and it's a certainty that when they do succeed, the bank will have more money, have enough money to pay off uh, its uh, depositors, why there will not be some profit-maximizing actor who is prepared to come in and buy those unfinished uh, projects and in the process make the depositors whole. And so in the language that is always used in talking, frequently used in uh, talking about uh, financial, uh, in financial uh, crisis, it's hard to understand how you can have a liquidity problem without at least the possibility of a solvency problem. And once you have the possibility of a solvency problem, it becomes less clear just how much you're making everybody better off by lending the money or by allowing the projects to be partially completed. Nonetheless, this liquidity, nonetheless, this diamond dibvig bank run metaphor has been very powerful in influencing financial policy in a wide range of uh, situations. It was this idea that was the justification, albeit without mentioning Diamond or Dibvig's name, that uh, Secretary Rubin and I used in explaining to President Clinton why it was important that we support Mexico in uh, 1995, uh, uh, and in countless other efforts of what their supporters call support programs and their opponents call bailouts in uh, financial history, when uh, institutions or uh, countries or individuals in, dis in financial distress were provided with support, the concept of it's a liquidity problem, so by providing support, we can coordinate around the positive equilibrium was uh, invoked. So this idea of a bank run or a set of bank runs and the provision of support provides a powerful way of thinking about a destructive, gap-increasing financial crisis. And it certainly fits a variety of situations. Uh, the situation that Mexico faced in 1985, perhaps the situation that uh, Bear Stearns faced several weeks ago, certainly the situation that the Fed was concerned about that has led it to provide 
financial support in the form of backstop facilities of many kinds to uh, many uh, financial institutions. But it does not really address or seem in an obvious way to apply to many of the financial crises that uh, we observe. Many of the financial crises that we observe, think of the 1987 crash or think about events in the housing market or mortgage market today, involve freely traded assets. They don't involve banks. They don't seem to involve uh, bank runs. What I'd like to suggest, and I can only suggest this in an imprecise way, is that in an important sense, there is a broad class of behavior that goes on in speculative markets that is in its character very similar to uh, the character of a uh, bank run. One way of thinking about uh, that uh, bank run is to think about the value that you associate with a deposit claim on the bank in question. There's this troubled bank, there's this bank. In normal times, I have a $1 deposit. The deposit is worth $1. That's it's a $1 deposit, it's worth $1. That's easy. Now imagine that the price of that deposit falls because there comes to be a question whether that bank is going to succeed or whether that bank is going to fail, or for that matter, that the price of that claim falls because of doubts about the solvency of uh, the bank. Do I, as a depositor, wish to put more deposits into the bank because the price has fallen? Or do I wish to sell my claim as rapidly as I can? If you think about it for a minute, the situations in which the value of deposits are falling are the very situations in which you are most eager to sell those deposits back to uh, the bank. To go back to uh, economics's uh, standby, the most basic idea that we teach freshmen in that we teach freshmen in economics is uh, the law of supply and demand, the stabilizing nature of markets, markets as a negative feedback mechanism. We tell the story in lots of ways. There's a surplus. Uh, there's a uh, there's a surplus of uh, apples when there's a surplus of uh, when there's a when there's a surplus of uh, apples uh, the price falls and then there is demand increases and then there isn't a surplus of apples anymore. There's a shortage of apples. The price rises. Then there isn't a shortage. Of, then there isn't a shortage of apples anymore. And our basic image of the economic system is as a self-equilibrating uh, system with 
a single equilibrium that is determined by that law of supply and demand. If the demand curve slopes in the wrong way, if a falling price leads to less demand, or equivalently to more supply, then none of our normal intuitions uh, work. Price falls in response uh, to uh, excess demand and rises in response to excess supply, magnifying uh, the excess. If there's a single equilibrium, it can be unstable. If the demand curve has the more exotic shape that goes with some people uh, responding to uh, price uh, over some range by reducing demand and others responding by increasing uh, demand, then there are other possibilities. I draw here a diagram that's been produced uh, many times in many different uh, contexts uh, where you engage in the intellectual exercise of this is complicated, this is wild, this is really crazy. Let's think of a reason why the demand curve could have both slopes. Let's suppose that sometimes it has the normal slope and sometimes it has the other. Then if it fits together in the right way, there can be two equilibria, one good and uh, one bad. And one could clearly proliferate examples of uh, this kind. So if there is a mechanism present more generally in financial markets that causes the price of uh, the, the demand for financial assets to increase with uh, price or to decrease with uh, supply uh, or to, or, to uh, or, or causes um, uh, demand to decrease as price falls, then one has the possibility of instability that has very much the character of the bank run. Is this a reasonable hypothesis uh, to, uh, main, uh, to maintain? Uh, this brings us, and I will not uh, dwell on this at any length, to a broad set of issues uh, associated uh, with uh, behavioral uh, finance. Uh, like Bob Schiller, I was very struck when I encountered the assertion of Mike Jensen and others in the late 1970s that the efficient market hypothesis was the best established fact in uh, the social sciences. By the way, that didn't necessarily mean that it was a well-established uh, fact. Um, but as Jensen uh, used the term, uh, that was its meaning. And I, I have to say that as I make that remark about social sciences, I'm reminded of um, the observation somebody once offered that if you have to call it science, it isn't. Um, cognitive science, Christian science, political science, 
social, sci uh, social uh, science, and so I have ever since hearing that never used the term economic science uh, to refer, uh, to, to, refer uh, to any uh, phenomenon. These issues were crystallized uh, for, uh, for me. I had followed uh, Bob's, uh, Bob's work on uh, excess volatility and tried to contribute some of my own on the uh, power of uh, statistical tests. And I was struck by the bitterness of the controversies that surrounded um, uh, Bob's work on excess volatility in particular, where so many in finance seem to regard attacks on the efficient market hypothesis in rather the way they would regard attacks on their spouses um, or uh, children that uh, called for not just a rational rejoinder, but uh, some effort at the destruction of uh, the assailant. But I remember that my sense of the issue and uh, the merits where my sympathies had always been uh, with Bob crystallized in the summer of 1987. In the summer of 1987, there were a certain set of facts that were very clear. It was very clear in the summer of 1987 that if you divided stock prices by any interesting denominator, they were at an extraordinarily high level. Earnings, dividends, sales, GNP, if you were at Yale, the value of the capital, the, you added the debt and you divided by the value of the capital stock. It didn't matter. All denominators, uh, stock prices were extraordinarily high. And then the question was, how to interpret that observation. And there were two interpretations on offer. One was the conventional interpretation that would have seemed the only plausible interpretation to anyone who read the newspaper, which was that stocks have been going great and a lot of people wanted to buy stock, and therefore they all tried to buy stock, and there only so, was so much stock, and the price went up. And as a consequence of the price going up, it was probably true that the return going forward was going to be lower than it had been before the price went up. That was one interpretation. That seemed the obvious and natural interpretation. The alternative interpretation was that for some reason, people who used to demand 8% expected returns to buy stocks were now demand, had somehow had decided for some reason that they'd really be just as, they'd really be, they used to demand 8% to buy stocks given the risk, but all of a sudden, for whatever reason, and the reason was never spelled out with any clarity, they now were happy to accept a 6% rate of return, and therefore all the future dividends and all the future earnings were discounted at a lower level. So there was, in a way, a simple intuition for deciding what you believed. Did you believe that returns were low because stock prices were high, 
or did you believe that stock prices were high because people had decided they were perfectly content with low returns? Well, it was an easy way to distinguish those hypotheses, and Bob did it at the time, which was to ask people what returns they were expecting, what returns they were settling for. And the answer suggested that, if anything, they favored high returns rather than, they expected higher returns than they had previously, not lower returns than they had previously. Why do I dwell on all of this? Because it is a first example of what I actually think are a substantial variety of mechanisms, all of which can produce this kind of positive feedback behavior in uh, financial markets. The first and easiest mechanism for understanding um, why uh, there will be positive feedback behavior or equivalently a decline in demand as price falls and an increase in price and demand as price rises is the extrapolative expectations that come from recent experiences. One of the things I learned painfully being involved with managing the dollar as Secretary of the Treasury was there is absolutely no way, no matter how powerful you are and no matter how clever you are, that the dollar can be lower without falling. It cannot happen, no matter how much you want to have a falling dollar without, a low dollar without a falling dollar. And in just the same way, a rising stock price leads to a higher stock price. And therefore, if people demand more after increases in price, they are demanding more as price rises. That's one mechanism through which there can be positive feedback. A second mechanism, which Bob has put considerable emphasis on uh, in uh, his uh, writing, is uh, social contagion. Uh, it's people persuade other people, people look at other people. Basically, uh, the bubble psychology uh, takes hold as a social dynamic uh, not necessarily related uh, to any rational assessment of the future behavior of markets. A third mechanism is uh, one that can easily be given uh, rational uh, explanation. I am the risk manager. John is a trader. I don't actually know whether John knows anything or not. Uh, he says he does, and, but, and he's got a complicated story, and I can't quite tell how much he knows. He just lost a lot of money. Should I have more confidence in John, or should I have less confidence in John, knowing that he lost a lot, that he just lost um, a uh, lot of money? Probably I should have less confidence. Uh, in John, and as an empirical uh, proposition, his risk manager will have less confidence uh, in uh, John, and so positions that do not succeed have less capital associated with them than positions that do succeed, uh, 
again, creating uh, this kind of positive uh, feedback. A fourth mechanism that will create uh, this kind of uh, positive uh, feedback uh, derives uh, from uh, leverage. Anyone who buys on margin or any financial institution that has a capital requirement, when they lose money, there is a margin call or a need uh, to uh, generate uh, capital, which can lead to the liquidation of, uh, that, can, that can lead to the liquidation of uh, positions. Again, falling price, more uh, selling. A fifth example, and a fifth source of uh, positive uh, feedback comes uh, from uh, what one might think of as uh, model uncertainty. There are different ways to tell the story, and I suspect it could be given much more rigorous formalization uh, than I'm going to uh, attempt here. A prominent macroeconomist early in his career developed on the basis of some macroeconomic model that he had a extremely strong view that the British pound was going to depreciate. With great excitement, he found an older colleague who had a broker, called the broker, and explained that he wished to place uh, an order in the futures market to sell the pound short. The broker said, okay, I've got your order. What would you like your stop loss to be? The young macroeconomist said, what's that? The broker explained that it was normal that when you placed a position, in case the position moved against you, since you didn't want to lose too much money, and if the position moved against you, it might signal that you didn't understand this and things weren't playing out according to your theory of the case, that you might want to sell. The macroeconomist said, hell no. If it goes up 5%, I want to buy a lot more. The young macroeconomist did not ha had a, went on to have a very distinguished career as a macroeconomist, but a rather less distinguished career as a uh, speculator. If I asked you, um, in what way would you like to place a, you have some, you have some conviction, you've got some idea uh, that the yen's going to go up, that the yen's going to go down, something. Let's suppose it's that the yen is going to go up. And I say, would you rather buy yen, take your chances that the yen might go up or the yen might go down, or would you rather buy an option on the yen? If you buy an option on the yen, then there's no way, no matter what happens, that you can lose more than the amount that you paid uh, for the yen. 
you can get very substantial leverage um, on the option. If you buy an out-of-the-money um, option, you can pay only a very little bit of money, and if the yen goes up, you will multiply your uh, initial stake by a very substantial amount. Most people presented with that choice, if they believe the option is priced fairly, choose to buy the option. But if you think about what that means, that is a decision to pursue a positive feedback trading strategy. That is a decision that the more the position moves in your favor, the more your option is in the money, and the larger is your exposure to the underlying stock or the underlying currency. So anyone who chooses to use options as a trading vehicle is choosing an approach in which they are going to increase the magnitude of their position as the price rises or decrease the magnitude of their position as the price falls. Again, exactly the opposite of the natural stabilizing response. A final source of this kind of positive uh, feedback is the prospect that increases in uh, movement uh, for any of uh, these reasons are jumped on by those who simply anticipate the positive feedback behavior of others and therefore trend follow in an effort to front run others who are generating these trends. I would suggest to you that consideration of these mechanisms, along with consideration of the experience in markets, a basic pattern that we tend to observe in markets, positive serial correlation in the short run, mean reversion in the long run, suggests the pervasiveness of this kind of positive feedback behavior, and therefore suggests the likelihood that financial markets will be subject to very substantial instability and multiple equilibrium. And just as the positive feedback associated with the bank run makes a case for, or at least opens up a case for activist uh, policy, so also in the case of financial markets, the possibility of downdrafts caused by falling prices that lead to selling, that lead to more selling, uh, that lead to falling prices, or updrafts caused by the opposite mechanisms make a potentially strong case for government action to contain financial uh, crisis. So far, I've tried to make the case that I want to make
uh, for uh, today, that the macroeconomics of the next generation will be much more about finance and financial crisis than the macroeconomics of the generations that shaped our textbooks, that the social gains from preventing and containing financial crises are likely to be significant and offer the prospect of achieving the deep-seated goal of every Keynesian macroeconomist, reducing the average output gap over a long period of time and thereby producing more total output, that a realistic theory of financial uh, crisis has to be based on something other than the idea that the market is efficient and that the notion that bank run-like behavior can be generated out of the behavior of speculative participants in financial markets who respond perversely from an economist's point of view to uh, price signals is a highly plausible one. Tomorrow, I hope to illustrate uh, that these broad ideas have connection with the current financial crisis uh, that we face and to suggest uh, to evaluate some of the policy measures that have been undertaken and to suggest some policy actions for the future. Thank you very much. Bob, I don't know what the format here is, but I'd be happy to answer a few questions. Yes, sir. If the government seeks to stabilize as a way of avoiding these uh, perverse positive feedback consequences, doesn't that very government action itself create the possibility for increased expectations? Are the government continue doing that, and therefore, if the government gets to a point where it says no, it will have created its, uh, its own positive feedback mechanism that is perverse in itself? I had a. Um I had a conclusion addressed to the word moral hazard that I decided to defer to the first part of what I was going to say tomorrow. But since you ask uh, essentially the question, I'll, uh, I'll address it uh, right now. Um, I chose in summarizing uh, the main points to use the phrase uh, this possibility of positive feedback opens space for constructive government action precisely so as to not judge with absolutism that in every case there would be desirable things for governments to do uh, precisely because of the expectational effects uh, that you describe. But it seems to me that um, before embracing moral hazard fundamentalism, 
uh, and the idea that if the government gets involved, then there'll be expectations of the government doing things, and then if there are expectations of the government doing things, people will respond to those expectations, and then it'll surely be bad. Before embracing that idea, one needs to pause over three points. Uh, first, moral hazard is not a reason why there should not be uh, insurance or a reason why problems uh, should uh, not be addressed by collective action. The standard wisecrack on the subject is uh, the fact that I smoked in bed is not usually considered a good reason for the fire department not to come to my house to put out the fire, especially if my house borders very closely on many other people's uh, houses. So the first point is, yes, there may, be adverse, there may be adverse effects that come from the expectations, and there may be beneficial effects that come from uh, the direct action, and those have to be traded off. Second, there is a certain sloppiness in supposing that all induced behavioral changes are to be thought of as undesirable. Consider a standard bit of public policy, the placing of guardrails beside highways. The government chooses, as part of the provision of a public good, to place guardrails uh, beside uh, highways and to place good guardrails beside highways. It is a documented empirical fact that as a consequence of the presence of those guardrails, people drive faster than they otherwise would. How should one think about, as an economist, the fact that they drive faster as in doing a welfare evaluation of guardrails? I think a moment's thought uh, should convince you that since they had the option of driving at the same speed that they did before, in the presence of the guardrails, they adjusted their behavior. The welfare gain from building the guardrails is greater than it would have been if people had, is, is, made, is magnified by the behavioral response that takes place. So if people decide, for example, that because we have deposit insurance, they are not going to check on the expressions of the bank tellers at their bank every day. That, I would argue, is an induced behavioral response from a public intervention, but it is one that magnifies the gain from deposit insurance rather than reducing the gain uh, from uh, deposit uh, insurance. The third point uh, to be considered, and it's getting a bit ahead of, uh, our, uh, of, our, of our story uh, of our story tomorrow, is that there is no uh, is that one has to very carefully consider the cost to the government of contemplated actions. People talk about bailouts in a rather indiscriminate uh, way, 
but it is a very different thing for me to loan my friend John a thousand dollars than for me to give my friend John a thousand dollars. And if I loan my friend uh, John a thousand dollars at a premium interest rate that exceeds the cost at which I borrow, it may even be profitable for me uh, to lend money to my friend John. And if I am making a profit, the question of in what sense I am subsidizing him becomes a uh, rather becomes a rather subtle uh, one. So take as a concrete uh, example uh, that poses uh, the issue uh, the loan that the United States made to uh, Mexico in uh, 1995. The loan that the United States made to Mexico came at a premium of, let's say on average, about 200 basis points over the Treasury's borrowing cost. At the time the United States made it, Mexico would have probably been unable to borrow at any interest rate below 1,000 basis points, and perhaps would have been unable to borrow, more realistically, probably would have been unable to borrow at all. So how does one think about that 200 basis point loan? One way to think about it is we made a profit, 200 is more than zero. Another way to think about it is, well, wait, the market, the market price of a loan to Mexico was 1,000 basis points. We made the loan at 200 basis points. Therefore, the loan is underwater in the first instant. Another way to think about it is, well, the market price is 200 basis, the market price is 1,000 points, 1,000 basis points, but that's assuming that it's Citibank trying to collect from Mexico. Probably the United States is gonna be much better at collecting uh, from Mexico for a variety of reasons than uh, Citigroup, just as the Fed is going to be much better at collecting from Merrill Lynch uh, than most uh, others. So there's considerable subtlety involved in judging whether lending activity at premium interest rates does or does not constitute a uh, subsidy. Almost always it will be profitable if paid back relative to the lender's borrowing cost. Almost always it will be at an interest rate that is, low, that is lower than the borrower could borrow at on the markets. And almost always in the case of public or quasi-public activity, there will be a reasonable argument that the, that the lender is better at collecting than the private sector uh, would have been. So the question of evaluating subsidy is uh, difficult. The position that I always took as Secretary of the Treasury with respect to the IMF was, look, we've got a long experience, and over time our loans have been paid back, and we've made money, 
And so you can't really think of this as bailout and subsidy. And I think it was a pretty strong argument. I would want to resist in the strongest terms the idea that because government involvement will affect private sector behavior, there is to be some presumption uh, that it is to be avoided. Yes. The you know world's a very the world's a very un, the world is a uh, very uncertain place and uh, default risks are uh, very very are uh, very very difficult uh, to uh, to uh, to judge. It's uh, far from it's far from clear that as a general matter, investors understate default risks. Indeed, I think most people who look closely at pricing patterns in bond markets would tell you that, if anything, investors systematically overstate default risks. And so on a very consistent basis, if you uh, buy riskier bonds and sell safer bonds, that on average proves to be a uh, profitable strategy and even proves to be a profitable strategy adjusting for the degree of risk uh, that you're taking. But the premise of uh, policy has uh, tended to be uh, a great deal of emphasis on transparency in the hope that with more transparency and better information, uh, investors uh, will make uh, more rational decisions and will make uh, more rational uh, decisions uh, ex-ante. There are also a set of issues that are involved here, um, and I'll say something about this tomorrow, having to do with the fact that the optimal number of auto accidents is not zero, and the optimal number of plane crashes is not zero. There is a trade-off to be made between uh, accepting a certain possibility of accident and a variety of advantages that come from the conservation of capital and the making available of, uh, of finance uh, in a variety of ways. Thank you very much.